This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today in my interview with Dr. Dawn Curry, we discuss her new book entitled Social Justice at Apartheid's Dawn, African Women Intellectuals and the Quest to Save the Nation. The title is currently out with Palgrave Macmillan Press. Dr. Curry is an associate professor of history and ethnic studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She is a scholar of 20th century sub-Saharan African history, women and gender in African history, and South African resistance struggles. Her first book is entitled Apartheid on a Black Isle, Removal and Resistance in Alexandra, South Africa, published in 2012. Stay tuned for our conversation. We hope that you enjoy. Dr. Don Curry, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Congratulations on your new book, Social Justice at Apartheid's Dawn, African Women Intellectuals and the Quest to Save the Nation. I'm so excited to speak with you about this rich and exciting contribution to African studies and to Black studies as well. So, um, but before we get into the book, um, can you please tell us about yourself and your journey to the study of African history? I'm curious to learn, as someone who is situated within both history and ethnic studies departments, how do you think about the relationship between Black studies and African studies? Okay, so I am a first-generation college grad, as well as first-generation master's and PhD. And I always thought when I was growing up that I was going to be a Spanish interpreter because that's what I was really into. You know, I was excited to take Spanish in high school at 13. And then when I got to college, I majored in Spanish and international affairs. But I always had this interest in resistance, especially the civil rights movement. And every time there was a class focused on Africa or African-American history, it conflicted with my Spanish classes. And so I vowed that the next time I went to school, I would focus on Africa, especially during the time when I was in college, you know, in the 80s. 
mm-hmm. the apartheid movement was wild, anti-apartheid movement was widely known. Nelson Mandela's name was in the forefront. And so I looked for programs for my master's that focused on African studies. And that's what I did. And I took a course, History of South Africa, and I got introduced to the Alexandra bus boycott. And the Pastor said, someone here will want to know that the people of Montgomery, Alabama, know about the people in Alexandra. And I said, well, did they? He goes, I don't know. So I ended up taking an independent course with him and comparing those two bus boycotts. Now, those bus boycotts started because of a uh, penny fare increase in 1940, 42, 43, and 44. Now, one of the historical figures that captured my imagination was Lillian Shabalala. And she is the genesis for all the other women that come out in my book. She was known to go around Alexandra parading with a tight-fitting black beret, and they and her and her women's brigade would form a human shield to prevent buses from entering and exiting the township. And she also was in the United States from 1912 to 1930. She originally came to study at Hampton University, then Hampton Institute, but she went on to... to to learn about missionary work at the where the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Oh, okay. She also came back home in the nineteen when nineteen thirty she returned home, and within two years, she formed the Daughters of Africa, which was a self help group modeled on the National Association of Colored Women in the United States because she so admired the Black Women's Club movement while she was here in the U.S. And she wrote, also wrote editorials about female empowerment and Black Women's Clubs and leadership. And from there, that's how I ended up studying about Alexandra and writing a dissertation on that, which became my first book, Apartheid on a Black Owl, Removal and Resistance in Alexandra, South Africa. Mm. And then, well, yeah, I see uh, Shabalala is a major figure um, in the new book, um, as well as many other women who you also introduce us to. So if you could tell us more about the origin story of the second book, Social Justice at Apartheid's Dawn, just explain to us how you came to and tell us why you came to write that book. Well, I believe that African history does not stop on the continent's borders. And so my love for Shabalala, like she's like one of my favorite historical figures because, I mean, here's this woman who's tackling serious issues during the segregation era, which, by the way, was from 1910 to 1948. So that was with the Union of the Boer Republics, the Orange Free State and the Transvaal and the British colonies of Natal and the Cape Colony, they formed Union in 1910. And that period became known as the segregation era. And it was not as harsh as the more virulent policy of apartheid, which took place in 1948. And I thought that the... The, you know, women's contributions to African nationalism, to that burgeoning movement, 
has been explored to some extent, but I found Shabalala and her writings as a window to this, mm-hmm. this important conversation. And through her, I found Mina Tobega Soga, who is the president of the National Council of African Women, Sibusisi Bali Makanya, who did the Bantu Youth League. You know, there was Angeline Dubek, who was also a leader of the Daughters of Africa in Natal. Shabalala started in Natal, and then she relocated to Alexandria in 1939 and got really immersed into that community. And also, I believe in talking about African voices. What are they saying? So I've read... um, Articles in Izizulu, Sesutu, in the Bantu world, and Alangalasi Natal, to get that voice, to to figure out how they were thinking and how they communicated, not just, you know, with their meetings and their organizational documents, but how are they communi- communicating with poetry, with editorials, and things like that. So that's how I came to those women. And they were all, I found them all in conversation with each other, but in different ways, which was good because I thought Makanya's focus on the rural area was very important, you know, but she went against her mentor who thought that Africans would only need to stay in the rural areas. And what she was doing, she was training train, training them from the transition to from rural to urban, Mm-hmm. So, and I was also curious is why they traveled and, you know, and the empowerment of traveling was, I mean, during a segregation era, you have a government that's monitoring you, maybe not as excessively as apartheid, but they're still monitoring you and you get to go overseas. I mean, Shabalala was gone for 18 years and she also went to London during that time and Ghana. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm excited to get into all of this. Um, and I want to go back to something that you said earlier in, in the last answer, um, just about some of the archival materials that you used. Your book draws on extensive amount of materials from the United States, from the UK, from South Africa. Um, you're working with English and you're also working with um, African language publications. So Um, Can you tell us broadly um, how you planned and conceptualized the research for this book? Um, And another thing that I also noted is that you kind of had to um, have a mastery over multiple historiographies, kind of like South African historiographies, Black internationalism historiographies, U.S. historiographies in order to write this book. So can you tell us, um, especially for the graduate students listening who are doing transnational work, how you managed incorporating various geographically scattered historiographies into one narrative? Firstly, I would say it had a lot to do with my training at Michigan State University. Not only was I an Africanist, but I also had comparative Black history as a minor field. And so Mm -hmm. always seeing things, the connections, the holistic experience of Africans, you know, worldwide, one. And how I got into writing this book about this women, I did a proposal for Fulbright and 
I worked on it and worked on it. I was, you know, the first time I applied, I was an alternate. The second time I was outright rejected. And the third time I said, okay, I'm going to sit here and think because I get past the national. What am I doing that I'm not able to sell this? So I reworked it and got my thoughts clear, what I was trying to prove, research, you know, why I needed to be in South Africa, why I needed to go to London and, you know, what kind of cultural exchange I wanted to do. I was um, part of the University of Pretoria's, you know, their Fulbright Fellow for that year. So I I delivered a, a paper there on Lilin Shabalala. And I also did some um, classes, you know, impromptu classes about oral history as well. And so the historiographies, to me, it goes with my philosophy that African history is a continuous process. And sometimes you have to look at other historiographies to get ideas on what you're writing about, you know, influence what you write. And so when I'm in the archive, I don't see a building. When I'm in William Cullen Library at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, and I'm sitting at that corner chair, I see those documents as my turntable, and I'm the DJ playing records of the past. So in my head, as I'm looking at these documents, I'm arranging things in verses, you know, having a bridge and, you know, making this connection intro, outro. And so that's how I view it. And I'm always taking notes. Um, Another thing, you know, you look at a lot of things when you're in the field, you know, you're you're there in a limited amount of time. But, you know, when you're photographing items, you must catalog them, write a brief note. If an idea comes to your mind at that time, you should jot it down. I do that as well when I'm reading text. I have, my books are all full of different colors of footnotes, you know, sticky notes. And because you always think you're going to remember the brilliant idea you had, but you don't. So I see things musically and... Yeah, and that's that's how I got into the um, some of the choral writing that the women did, the poetry. Because to me, you have to use cultural art forms when you're talking about African studies and African history, because a lot of that gets lost because people don't look at it. But oral culture and tradition is very important. Mm-hmm. You know, and women, especially women, you have to look for like, like, like my one of my mentors, Darlene Clark Hines. She did this book. We specialize in the holy impossible, right? You cannot just look at conventional sources when it comes mm-hmm. to women or African people. And sometimes, you know, sources about women are found in, you know, documents and files about white men. You know, mm-hmm. and so it's not mm-hmm. neatly say, oh, the National Council of African Women, it might be under sanitation or something. You know, it depends. And you have to be willing to to look, to scour, you know, good, experience trial and experience error. You know, I mean, that's part of the game. And yeah, so. I like the records that those women were spinning and that led me to write in the book. 
I just absolutely love, love, love that spinning records of the past and the ways that you see things musically um, in the history. I think that is so beautiful. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, let's, I also want to uh, note that the and ask you about this, the writing and the prose um, in this book, Social Justice at Apartheid's Dawn, it's beautiful, it's moving, and it's very original. So I'm wondering if you could tell us, um, perhaps like, you know, people who are writing their dissertations, early career scholars who are writing their first books, um, how your writing process um, has developed over the course of your academic journey. Um, And maybe you can give us some um, seeds of wisdom um, on writing. Write, write, and rewrite, you know, <laughs> and, you know, polish, polish, polish. I sit by my computer and I have this black rock that I got in South Africa in 1997 that I found on the shores in St. Lucia. And it's kind of like I rub it, you know, it's kind of like um, mm-hmm. a comforting thing. I think so. A soothing stone, exactly. I don't think I wrote the book. What I'm saying is that I think the people that channeled me wrote the book. So it's it's deeper than me. You know, I was led to sources. I was led to questions. And the writing, you know, we were taught in faculty boot camp, you should write at least 30 minutes a day. And oftentimes I find myself writing more than that. And sometimes I would write, okay, I went a thousand words today or I went 1500 words. And that's what I would do. And then I would take a break. I would lay down on the couch, let my ideas marinate, and then maybe write some more later. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I shouldn't say this, but oftentimes I would write with music on. And mm. that kept me going. And there, then there were some days where there was complete silence. Uh, may I ask what kind of music you listen to when you write? Is it an eclectic arrangement of things? Or do you have a few favorite uh, artists or genres that uh, really help you uh, get through it's, daily writing? It's eclectic. It could be Prince. It could be South African jazz. It could be, you know, um, Earth, Wind & Fire. It depends. Oh, that's great. So let's um, let's move next um, to the book's contents um, for or further deeper into the book's contents for unfamiliar audiences. I'm wondering if you can do some stage setting um, and help our listeners who might be more familiar with the apartheid era in South Africa, and um, if you could explain. Um, the segregationist era in South Africa, um, how that's different than the apartheid era and why it was significant for you to excavate African women's intellectual work during that specific time period. Okay. So the segregation era, 1910 to 1948, that's when the British and the Afrikaners, these were Dutch descendants, right? Who were worse known as the Boers, then the Trek Boers, when they went on the great tracks in the 1830s. And they fought two virulent wars um, in 1880 and 1881. It was the first South African war or the first Anglo-Boer war. And then the last one was 1899 to 1902. Now, although Africans and the people that were referred to as mixed race or the colors fought on each side of the battle, Though the white minority got together 
with the Union of South Africa and began to erode the rights away from Africans. And that meant such things as the 1911 Mines and Work Works Act, which established a color bar in the mining industry, meaning that Africans will only be able to apply themselves in unskilled labor. Managerial positions and supervisory positions were for whites and coloreds. But there was also a move to get Africans off the land, to get them to stop subsisting, and to get Africans into a cash wage economy. And this is where the 1913 Natives Land Act comes into play. It took 93% of the population, the African population, and placed them on 7% of land. And this is not the best land. It's the most infertile land. And this story of land grabbing and geographically engineering the landscape would be a continual story throughout South Africa's history from the segregation era to the apartheid era. Excuse me. And the reason why, now, the 1913 Natives Land Act was important because it dispossessed people. And in the book, I use three examples of how Africans viewed this act. And one of them was Solomon T. Plati, who was one of the original founders of the African National Congress, the oldest Black political organization in South Africa, founded in 1912. He wrote this book called Native Life in South Africa. So basically, he went and did research and, and, and saw the highways of people distraught and, you know, um, not knowing where they're going to live, you know, on sitting on the side of the road. And he talked about that. So talk about what does the, what does taking the land mean? And Adelaide Charles Dubé, who was a poet and was married to Charles Dubé, Mm-hmm. She wrote Africa, My Native Land, and she talked about this lush valleys and green hills, and she said that she will not be satisfied until her bones stop rattling. Mm-hmm. So I looked at each of these two pieces and also the song by Ruben Caluso, who also went to Hampton University and also went to Columbia University. And he was really big as a musician in South Africa. He wrote this song called Umteto Way Act, which is the Land Act. And so my question was, how are these, how were these individuals griots? What did they tell us about that current time? Right? Mm-hmm. You know, you have Soul Plati talking about you have families that are, you know, it's ice cold, they're on the road chilling. One was taking a, a Tyler by an oxen wagon, and the Tyler dies, and they, for fear of retribution, are burying the child at night, you know, under the cover of darkness because they don't feel free or have the right to mourn. Or as Kenneth J. Doka says, that their disenfranchised grief was not being met with a proper funeral. So what I argue with Solomon T. Plati's piece is that he enfranchised them 
by writing what he did and giving them a literary tombstone and a place to rest. Mm-hmm. And you could say the same thing about Adelaide Charles Dubé. She was really heartbroken about the land because people don't understand land is not just something that you get to produce things. It's about the communal ownership from one generation to the next. It's about the spirituality of the land. It's about its richness. It's about, you know, the connection with the cosmological forces. Mm -hmm. So, so, as South as the South African segregation process goes on in 1923, they're going to create the Natives Urban Areas Land Act. And what that is going to do is set aside 13% of the land now for African occupation. Mm-hmm. So what that means is you have townships. So the goal was to make this city center white. So that meant if Africans, colors, or whatever group were in those, you know, metropolitan areas, they will forcibly remove them and plop them down somewhere else. Okay. So we're talking losing community ties. We're talking, you know, uprooting people, businesses, all kinds of things were destroyed. Right. So this was the beginning of urban segregation. And so townships would skirt the city center. So by the time apartheid rolled around, you get more stringent laws, laws that do not allow you to pass from one race to the other for better benefits, you know, economic benefits, school benefits. You get... The Group Areas Act, you know, where groups have to be confined to a particular area. So you're going to get the development of more enclaves. So, for instance, you could have a township like Soweto, which stands for the Southwestern Townships. And you could have African populations. However, the Tosa will be separated from the Zulus and so on and so forth. Okay, so Alexandra was unique in that case. And like Martindale and other places, it was a freehold, meaning that Africans and colors could own land in the city center. And that's why you had such a development of resistance in the square mile, going back to its first consumer boycott in 1917 against the buses, and then in 1918, and then again, 40, 42, 43, 44, and in 57, and also well into the 80s under apartheid. So I would say that one of the primary differences is that the rules of engagement become more entrenched. The repression is harsher. You have identity documents called passes, which women did not have to carry because they successively um, campaigned against them for years until the 1950s. And that meant with these identity documents, they had fingerprints, names, residencies, ethnicities, um, employment history, occupations. They would do raids in the wee hours of the morning. And disrupt people's sleep, disrupt families, take people, you know, jail them, make them pay a fine, and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, Dr. Curry, I think, um, uh, you know, when I think of that, uh, that 1950, 1956 women's march that you just, that you just referenced, which was one of the largest mass mobilizations, um, against some of the early, um, apartheid laws and threats to have women carry passes. Um, I just, I think that this, um, amazing and brilliant cohort of African women intellectuals who you introduce us to in this book are very much uh, kind of like a, a, a precursor um, to the women that we see in that 1950s moment. So I'm wondering if you can tell us um, more about this cohort, uh, how you see them as a cohort, uh, perhaps how you selected them, and tell us what putting these women in conversation together reveals about Black politics, resistance, and survival in segregationist South Africa. And you want me to answer that in two minutes, right? <laughs> Take as, however long you need. <laughs> however long you need. I wanted contemporaries, right? Contemporaries would be looking at similar issues while we going on in the country. Right. They were dealing with disintegration of families, you know, with the migrant labor system. That's also something that the 1913 Natives Land Act caused. Right. Because they want Africans off the land and earn a cash wage, you know, no longer barter, no longer, you know, subsisting, having independence. So contemporary Two, they also shared the commonality. Some of them shared the commonality of travel and how did travel influence their outlook. And three, I would say they wrote things, you know, editorials, or they critiqued um, segregation. They had visions for what they wanted to see South Africa be. And for the nation, which, you know, they saw as not only as a group of people with ethnicity and language and culture, but also with the spirituality that's connected by Ubuntu. Because as it says, I am as you are. So without you, I am nothing. So, you know, that that was the guiding principle. And, you know, when Angeline Kumala Dubis said, wake up daughters, it's dawn. She meant that because there was prostitution going on, there was wayward youth, you know, disrespect amongst the el- uh, the youth towards the elders. There was also, I think these women also found a voice when there weren't many African female organizations for them. So for instance, you know, many were, present when the African National Congress was formed, such as Shalak Matike, right? She was there. She wanted to join, but the men voted against her. And Saul Plati says, no, she was more credentialed than anybody. So that she started the Bantu Women's League as a result of that. So I wanted to understand what ideas they had to shape the South Africa in which they live and possibly leave a legacy for those to mine in the future. Right. And um, so you told us a little bit about how uh, these women are kind of connected in their similarities. Um, but I'm wondering, what are some of the ways that the African women intellectuals uh, who you present in this book, how did they think of ideas about gender, African nationhood, and belonging differently 
from one another because we do see some kind of contrast within the text. Um, and what did these women as a whole see as the main threat of the government's segregationist policies? Um, that And like what threat did they pose to those policies pose to ideals of African nation Hood or conceptions of African nationhood, as well as community? Well, I would say some of the urban vices to prostitution, alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about the way Shabalala expressed herself, because, you know, she wrote, well, I was reading um, another book, Titi Elijaji's Africa in Styria, and I found how. Um, Pixley Gaisemi had kind of used the words of Booker T. Washington. And so I noticed the same thing was going on in some of Shabalala's editorials. You know, she would use James Weldon Johnson and Rosamond Johnson's, you know, Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is the African-American national anthem. And, you know, and when you say sing, a song full of the praise that uh, the dark past has taught us or whatever, she would say sing a song you know, about bringing sisterhood together. So I would say she and Mina Tobega Soga were about sisterhood. Mm -hmm. And, And the way she sampled, and, you know, I do see that, you know, again, music comes into play. She sampled not only the words of James Weldon Johnson and Rosamond Johnson and lived every voice and sing, but she also used the words of Booker T. Washington. When she, when Booker T. Washington in the Atlanta compromise of 1895 talks about, you know, we're separate as together, you know, separate as the five fingers are like or whatever. And she was saying, you know, the same thing about sisterhood. And she paraphrased that to apply to, the South African situation. And she also used a Bible to teach morals and how the daughters of Africa were constructed was based on the Mayanos, um, you know, the prayer women's groups, you know, where you open with prayer, you open with song, you know, she did her own litany and a litany, you know, told the DOA litany told what women should do. So in her view, morals needed to be worked on and a closer relationship with God needed to be attained again. Now, whereas I would say a difference with Siba Sisi, Violet Makanya is that she opened up Natal to everybody. She felt that in order for the white population to understand what it was like to live in the rural areas in Natal and away from Durban and all the beaches and all the fun and touristy stuff was to come there and also learn the indigenous Zulu language. (laughs) And she created a school she had a night school where she trained herd boys. You know, they had to work during the day and they came and studied at night. And she also trained women. So I would say education was key with all of these women. Sometimes it was executed differently. So you could say, for instance, Shabalala was executing about um, educating rather about the Bible and how we become a moral 
uplifting person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When CBC Makanya was trying to bridge the divide between white and black by dispelling myths or, mm-hmm. you know, letting people in on the inner mysteries of what it was like to be African in the mm-hmm. second period. You know, she had to get permission for Lavinia Scott to even go to her Umbulu, you know, um, place where she had her, um, you know, her school. So also I think she was really good at talking about retaining African culture, you know, you know, sitting around a crawl and listening to Ugogo, you know, grandmother talk about history, you know, getting Mm -hmm. back to those types of things, the oral traditions, you know, what they all were afraid of was that Africans themselves, no matter what ethnicity they were going to be lost by the intrusion and also the inclusion of Western ideas. Mm-hmm. Right, right, exactly. And of course, like in, you know, 1976, what Soweto is, is in part an uprising against the cultural imperialism mm-hmm. of the, um, of the joint, well, of the Afrikaans, well, of Afrikaans, that Afrikaans, the language of Afrikaans poses to um, many of the schools in Soweto and school children in Soweto. So um, with that, I want to move into talking um, about the ways that you um, access African women's intellectualism through their cultural and literary output, through um, the oral tradition, as you just mentioned, through poems, narratives, and musical composition. Um, how and why was culture an important realm of resistance specifically? Um, and why was that um, uh, kind of like, why was that um, a, like space or a realm that women had um, access to um, in ways that maybe they didn't have access to when it came to um, like more traditional political avenues. I would say they still had access to more traditional avenues, you know, through their organizations and going around and speaking, mm-hmm. you know, developing branches. Okay. So I would, I argue that, you know, when they develop branches, they were recreating the homesteads, the villages kind of situation, right? So the mm-hmm. Africa had a stronghold in Peter Marysburg, the National Council of African Women tried to go there and they were like, mm-mm. And Shabalala really wasn't having it. You know, she wanted to be the one, you know, to have the first federation for African women. But as you know, Amanda, that went with, that went to Lillian Goye, Helen Joseph, you know, when they started the Federation of South African Women, right? Yes. So, um, to me, culture is very important because, you know, I am reminded of the movie Amandla, A Revolution in Four-Part Harmony, where they're singing the song Nazi and Dodama of Verwood, right? And it sounds happy. It sounds jubilant. You know, everybody's dancing. But it's really disguising what it's really, what it's really saying. We will shoot you. We will kill you. So I think there, I think that poems allowed the poet to have hidden 
transcripts as well as public mm. transcripts, you know? Especially mm. way through the language, how something is said. I mean, even Nonsiti, right? She criticizes lambast African people and we're stabbing Africa. And she talked about how, again, this is a common theme. How is the African nation eroding? Mm-hmm. So she talked about the ways, you know, and I argue that, you know, one of the things that you do, you know, in another poem um, was to talk about the origin stories, how Europeans came into Africa, you know, Table Bay and all these other things and how, you know, they could be exercised and this, mm-hmm. that might be a little, but the point is, is that they were calling for an exorcism. They were calling for an exorcism of urban vices. They were calling for an exorcism to a certain extent of Western ideas, especially if they replaced or were, what's the word, privileged over African traditional customs. Mm-hmm. So my my Bible for um, some of these poems were in the Women Writing Africa series. This, they have different series, the Northern region, the Eastern region, and the Southern African region. And then there was a book by that guy that had all of Nonsisi's um, poems. And so I was trying to find a way how they each talked about loss, grieving, as well as the glory of an African past that they wanted to attain again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that that's such a brilliant reading of the poetry that it kind of holds, um, it holds the history um, that traditional kind of like history and academic Western history and academic institutions were silencing at the time, but poetry is holding and care and passing, passing that history on mm-hmm. um, for militant and resist resistive purposes as well as. Um, yeah. And then I think that I also think the idea of it being uh, what's the word, uh, the hidden transcript idea that you mentioned that it's um, um that the militancy can be hidden within the poetry. It's all this, it's beautifully delivered, but it's militant um, in terms of uh, what the content is, is saying and communicating. Um, so yeah, so in chapter five, um, we are, I'm excited to talk about this as well. In chapter five, we're introduced to African women who travel around the world, um, including to uh, the United States. So can you tell us about Black women's internationalism in your work and tell us about how these women's overseas experience influenced their thinking and organizing around issues of race, gender, and nation in South Africa and beyond? Yeah. Um, for this, you know, I was reading Minka Makalani's work, Keisha Blaine, you know, and they all talk about Black internationalism as the connections to forge, forge through groups, right? You know, these broad political, political justice and things like that. I want to look at something a little bit more on the ground, so to speak. How do people's feelings, pains, and emotions become part of Black internationalism? 
Mm-hmm. And so you would have like Charlotte Matike talking about being forlorn in Ohio, you know, when she was there studying under W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, or you would have Makanya talking about the racism excuse me, Katie McConaughey talking about the racism in England or how they were treated better. So I wanted to know what would their experience be like amongst others and how would they interact with other nationals, other African nationals or African-Americans? You know, sometimes African-Americans also dressed up as Africans to earn money. So what was going to be that that interchange and how would their voices serve as a vehicle for change within the countries they went to? You know, you had England, you had Mina Tabeka Soga who went to India and she was the only African woman there speaking in India. And she went to the Netherlands. And, you know, that is something I would love to go to the Netherlands to see if I can find information about her there. And not only that, she was in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1939. Really? The Union on campus. So, so. When I would say, so what did they learn? So Mina Tabegasoga went to a missionary conference in India. So she learned that civilization, what she argued that civilization was not the answer. Christianity was strength. So, you know, they get different viewpoints. Shabalala got from it how to, you know, make Black women club movements a business. Mm-hmm. My only regret with her is she never wrote down anything while she was in the States. Mm. And I would love that. I traced her to Brooklyn. She was um, director of a choir there, but I haven't been able to find that. And I know she gave a paper on her three years in the Gold Coast, but I haven't found like a hard copy. So that's some of my only regret. And that's why the book Daughter Africa by Ruth Isabel Seabury was so important in my research because she documented Soga's sojourn. She documented, you know, in India, in the United States and how in one place near, I think it was near George Washington's house, how the they went to eat and how the people there threw away the dishes after they ate or how they couldn't eat with other people or how she was allowed to be in certain desegregated spaces if she wore her duke, you know, because they wanted to exoticize her. So, you know, I wanted to know how were they othered and then how were they, you know, placed on a higher level? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the traveling to me taught them about, for Shabalala, it taught her about America's hypocrisy, right? Mm -hmm. She was talking about Negroes, and these was her words, Negroes still being burnt at the stakes, you know, the Pullman uh, car porters, you know, being segregated, how, you know, Asians couldn't, you know, get into certain hotels. And she's, you know, saying basically that the America was good at painting a clean, sanitized image 
abroad, but within the country, you saw what really happened on the ground. So it kind of opened up a new lens for her of how to view America as well as South Africa. Right, right. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, you have kind of already... Um, you kind of already told us a little bit about uh, the answer to my next question, which is um, uh, you've told us about how Alexandra ha- became, how and why Alexandra, the town, uh, the area became a focal point um, of uh, political activity, um, especially kind of as um, these proto-apartheid policies are emerging. Um, So I'm wondering if we could spend some time instead talking about just some of the organizations that operate in Alexandria. So maybe the Daughters of Africa, the Women's Brigade, and the Alexandria Women's League. Okay, yeah, the Alexandria Women's League was created during the 1943 bus boycott. And that that consists of housewives, domestics, and factory workers. And they wrote a three-page memorandum that was submitted to this commission of inquiry called the Beardmore, Beardmore Commission. And they talked about what it was like to be a laborer and a woman trying to get public transport from Alexandria to their places of employment. And so they each identified only by their laboring category or in the case of domestic wives in their social category. And they talked about the tardiness of the buses, Mm -hmm. their regular schedule and how they were late to work. And so when I just oppose their comments to the women's brigade, which was more militant. You know, that's when Shabalala's having her black beret, you know, type mm-hmm. of black beret parading throughout the seat, the streets. And, you know, with her group, she's, you know, locked in arms and hands and connecting, you know, so that, you know, the connections of the hands is also something intimate, intimate, right? It's connecting them deeper to their souls and they're blocking. I mean, these women are blocking buses and, you know, dealing with people, you know, dealing with the manhandling that the women face. So I saw that as an oral resolution, as an oral challenge, because they occupied the 15th Avenue bus rank, right? They stopped that Alexandra Bus Owners Association from capitalizing on the captive clientele that they had in Alexandra and shut it down. And so then, so you get a difference. You get the, it's almost as if they were metaphorically nude the moment they stood together, you see. And Mm -hmm. the buses were kind of like the males, right? Because, you know, in African societies, it is considered rude or, you know, um, not rude, but if a woman bears her body, you know, before, you know, men, it is considered, it's, it's a powerful statement, right? And so I saw those buses as the males that they were um, opposing and they were the, you know, metaphorically nude by mm. standing there and saying, no, 
you won't go past us. Right. There are so many um, militant gestures uh, in that chapter. Um, it's really enjoyable to read. And of course, the image of Shabalala in her black beret or just, you know, uh, thinking about it is is a powerful uh, thing in and of itself. Um, yeah. And in chapter uh, seven, we're introduced uh, to this idea of religious and literary sampling. And so I'm wondering if you could tell um, us about what you meant by that um, and how local and international discourses of um, religion and communal healing and education end up influencing African women intellectuals writing and uh, their organizing. Yeah, I, I touched on upon this a little earlier, but um, so when I say sampling, I was using the technique that musicians use when they use someone else's song and part of their, mm. their music. So Shabalala borrowed from traditional African culture as well as Western culture, particularly with the Manyanos, the prayer groups. That's how the Daughters of Africa were structured. So, for instance, I have that label as sample number one. And so the Manyanos originated during the 19th century in Eastern Cape, where the Amakosa, one of four Nguni nations, predominated. And the term Manyanos comes from the verb ugumanya, which means to join. And Lord had it that when Methodist women migrated from the Eastern Cape to colonial Natal, they incorporated Isikosa words into their Christian Zulu lexicon. So this became a general term used. And so the atmosphere of a Mayano is a lot of weeping, a lot of sighing, a lot of awes, a lot of, you know, talking and invoking the dead, you know, communing with, with the spirits. And it is one of the most authentic bodies. And each body, each Mayano had its own color uniform to ever signify which one, you know, which, how they belonged. Now, Shabalala, the way it was structured, the way the Mayanas were structured, they would have songs, scripture, prayers, and that would sound the implication to social worship. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, let me, this, for the second annual Daughters Federation at the Crown Mines, they opened with this song, Oh, Sister, Daughter, Hold to thy heart, thy day sister. Where pity dwells, the love of God is there. To worship rightly is to love each other. Each smile, a psalm, each kindly deed, a prayer. So again, we're talking, and you know, you could probably connect this to, you know, Steve Biko and the Black mm-hmm. Consciousness Movement, you know, where they're trying to uplift Black people, you know, and, and she's using religion to do this. To, you know, erase some of the things that were going on, you know, that made Africans feel inferior in South Africa, you know, with the separate water fountains, the separate bathrooms, the separate post offices and things like that. Mm-hmm. And these meetings were also used to give each branch a time to issue reports or ism mibuko, and they would give reports and say what was going on in each respective place. 
So that was one way that she sampled by using the structure of the Manianos. Mm-hmm. And another way was choral music and the Bible. So she talked about, for instance, she wrote this song called Abakayo Inlu Yabo. Now, that was a song that means it was her tune that says, How uh, Those Who Build Their House. Okay, and it was one of their anthemic songs, you know, and it was consisted of six stanzas, and it, it was sort of like a how-to manual, right? Telling people to black women to pray, to stand, to donate, to set a good example, and to work with God. That was her main thing: getting closer to God. And the opener verse proclaims, those who build their house without you waste their strength, God Almighty. Those who protect their house, if not protected by the Lord, keepers of all. And the other thing that I pointed out in this book is that the song's other main purpose was to hold hands. And this represented a staple in Shabalala's philosophy, as I've already talked about, you know, with the women's brigade when they're holding hands and the daughters of Africa, they're signaling their unity and their spirituality with claps hands. So they are asking also for forgiveness in this song. And another sample it's a call and response pattern. Yeah. You know, that's that's the call and response pattern, you know, is an art form in other places around the world, Latin American musical styles of salsa, cha-cha, rumba, timba, refer to the style as coro, pragon, while the genre also forms part of the North American Western folk music, you know, that sailors, laborers, and members of the armed forces sung. So it was a technique where it required audience participation. And I'll give you a brief example of this when Shabalala wrote the DOA litany, and it goes, leader, and the leader says, the wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish woman pluck it down with her hands. And the people go, oh, Jehovah, oh, oh, we beseech thee, make us willing to serve our homes, our communities, and our beloved country by working through thine guidance and thine love. And then it continues. And, the, you know, and then it ends with the people, you know, responding to the last thing that the leader says. And, you know, some of this invocation talks about jealousy, pettiness, disharmony, immorality, unfairness, and selfishness as things that were inhibiting Black people and African people from uniting. And so they were trying to unify, you know, through litanies, through the promotion of sisterhood and collaboration. Mm-hmm. So the last sample, I said she had phraseology with African-American men like Booker T. Washington and like the, the Johnson brothers. And let me read to you what she actually did with Washington. Washington said in the Atlanta Compromise the following In all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. And she made this reiteration in which she said, 
Imagine both the illiterate and the literate comprising the dozen of club movements in the union coming together as separate as they are and yet alike doing the same things at the same time as though some one powerful leader was directing the campaign. So she wasn't using the hands to discuss the separation and togetherness between blacks and whites like Shabalala had, um, excuse me, Washington had done. She chose instead to seek unity through religion and through a higher power of God. So, yeah, I think she, she was... I don't think she ever stopped being a choral director. You know, she did that stint in Brooklyn, but I think that's how she really directed the daughters. You know, the men, the you know, the style on the Manano, Manano's, the prayer women's groups. I think she was that one that was conducting, mm-hmm. and leading her flock, the daughters of Africa that were in Natal. They were in Peter Marisburg. They were in Sweetie. They were in Dundee. They were in uh, Alexandra. They were in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they were all over. And um, they even had a branch in Southern Rhodesia. At, that's what yes. it was called in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And um, yeah, she... I, so I would say, you know, going back to travel, she, and that's when I'm so mad at her, right? Right. You know how when you want to just have a conversation with the person, like, yeah. did you meet Booker T. Washington? Because she was there three years before his death in 1915, right? Did she meet Anna Julia Cooper and other women of the National Association of Colored Women? You know, was she in contact with the, the, the Johnson brothers, right? You know, with every voice and sing. What was her exposure? I know she went to Chautauqua to, to, to conferences in mm-hmm. upstate New York. And that was brilliant, too, because women from all over the world descended upon there for religious education for three weeks. And I think the Daughters of Africa was a model for what she wanted the African nation to be based on democratic principles, based on pan-humanism, based on collaborative engagements. Right. Um, Yeah. And I think this, um, yeah, uh, her attempts as well as uh, many of the women in the books attempts to uh, kind of like forge unity, build unity, whether it be, uh, well, it's around this idea of nation, but that that nation isn't necessarily territorially confined to what is the South African nation or what was the South African nation or the union at that point in time. Um, I think it segues into our next question, which is um, uh, just about this organization, the National Council of African Women. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about it. Um, and how they envision saving the nation. I would say that the National Council of African Women was first led by Charlotte Matike, right? It was established in the 30s. And when Matike died, in 1939, she was only president for two years. And then there was a secretary, somebody else holding it before um, Mina Tabekasoga took over and led from 1939 to 1954. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to include it because I wanted to show 
how women had different female organizations and operated them similarly or differently. Mm -hmm. So for instance, her, the information on what I like about this, this body of organization is that you had actual documents, you had actual presidential addresses, you had actual minutes of meetings and you, and from there I was able to form themes, right? And they were advocating interracial cooperation, Okay, and multiracialism, which is what the African National Congress stood for, right? So they were in sync there. And I think also that Soga, you know, through her travels, she was also interested in social service, right? Using development as a tool, right? Um, building schools, soup kitchens, you know, how do we get the community fed and organized and, you know, engaged in not only politics, but also in social social building in terms of infrastructure, in terms of, you know, growing gardens, things like that, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think each of them were doing that in their own way. And I think she was more into, which is one of the things I critique about them is because, you know, they had these ideas about, you know, teaching like the Daughters of Africa, teaching African people how to grow crops for subsistence and for sale. But they didn't do this on a larger scale. Like, say, for instance, when Biko talked about it later on or say, you know, under the guise of maybe like um, a Marcus Garvey, you know, when he had his ships, you know, things. So there was nothing, I would say, permanent other than for the National Council of African Women was its continued existence as an organization to this day. The other two organizations no longer exist. You know, the Band Youth League and the Daughters of Africa. And Shabalala died in 61 or 62. And there was some, some movement going on, but it wasn't as much as it was in the 30s and 40s. Hmm. Well, thank you for that as well. Um, and we're moving to the last chapter now. Uh, that chapter is called Blueprints for the Nation They Left Behind. Um, and you're very much engaged with um, some discourses in Black studies about Afrofuturism. So I'm excited to have you tell us about this and how you see an Afrofuturist politics within um, the African women intellectuals who uh, you feature in this book within their blueprints for saving the nation. Wow. Okay. Let me say, you know, one of the things that they wanted was to foster female comradeships, right? They all talked about solidarity, unifying with each other, you know, even had male speakers who came before them to tell them to forget that they're Basutu or, or Zulu and, you know, they're one, they're African people, right? And Yet, while they had men speak at these meetings, they were still they were not able to curry their favor enough. I won't say favor, but establish 
you know, a powerful dynamic where they were working in consort. Mm-hmm. So that was one of my critiques of that. Um, they needed to cultivate the soil and engage it in inclusive immersion. And that's the blueprint that Makanya left behind, right? Because she had whites going to Zulu area and learning the language and immersing in the culture. And that was her way to retain it at the same time. Hmm. So, you know, as I sit here and talk to you, the one thing I wish I had included in the blueprints was the use of poetry to talk about politics. But that's a continuation, right? Poets or artists are the, you know, they're the painters of you know, the landscape, the social context of the time, right? So, yeah. Um, This chapter, for me, I wanted to do an accounting of like, what did they actually say? What were the themes? What did they leave behind? And so when they talk about unity and multiracialism, you see that in some in structures such as the Solomon McClongo Freedom School that was started in the 1970s in Tanzania, right? When the ANC was in exile following, you know, the Sharpeville massacre when it was outlawed, you know, when the past protests turned into a carnage of 69 people dying and others mm-hmm. injured and they formed military wings and, you know, operated underground. And you also see it in Sisonke, Miss Amang's Always Another Country. And she talks about they were in Canada and she saved up this money to get a bike. And so the family ended up moving to Kenya. Now the family had lived in Zambia and other places. So she's in Nairobi and she rides her bike and her bike gets stolen. And so she's thinking of the pan-African or pan-humanist ideal, right? That this is another African, right? So, a good Samaritan finds the bike, the so the thief and she unite, but he doesn't see her in the lens to which she sees, you know, like like, you know, Kwame Nkrumah wanted in the United States of Africa, or you know, how the African Union, you know, has all people, you know, all people from the continent, right? He was seeing her as someone who had a material good that he did not have. So he did not see that connection with Africanness or Blackness. So I think, you know, that was her way of also going back to what these earlier women had talked about. How do we look upon each other as Black people, whether we're in the same country or or from a different one. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. And I think that that's, um, well, yeah, I think that that, uh, I think that the, that question is kind of like at the center of how we should, or at least how this book points to some potential or future um, for whether it be pan-African politics um, or, uh, as you say, pan-humanism um, and other forms of politics that I'm going to hopefully um, 
continue to fight uh, colonialism and neocolonialism in all of its forms and the ways that it's in our world today. So, um, yeah, what I, what I did feel they omitted, right, was taking part on the global stage. You know, you had examples of women's organizations that were on a global stage. I mean, they spoke the same language. They raised the same issues, you know, as the Women's World Congress for Peace and Liberty or, for instance, the EFU or the which was the Egyptian Feminist Union. And so what I did there to show that they were in conversation with other African women was Mm -hmm. to take quotes from the different women and then put it together, you know, in this, you know, and then analyze that to show how they were in fact part of this global movement that they did not assess. Right, exactly. Um, And before we go, I want to just have one more question for you. And that is uh, just on uh, what you are working on now. Uh, Clearly um, in your book, there's, there's so many future directions. Um, I didn't even get to ask all the questions that I wanted to ask you um, about this book. So I know that um, we can expect like many more great uh, books and projects and and works from you. So um, if you would share with us a little bit about that, that would be great. Thank you. Um, My next book project is going to be called Flights in Exile, African Women's Cold War Transnationalism and Global Mobility. So I'll be looking. I'm trying to come up with a definition of Black internationalism on the continent. I feel often that we go outside of the continent. And I think that we should make comparisons with countries on the continent, events, places, things, you know, to show the commonalities as well as the differences. And I will be going, hopefully going to South Africa uh, to, to continue to research there and going to Zambia and looking at documents there, as well as Egypt and Tanzania and some other places. And I'm working on one part of it now for it's an Oxford essay. It's on South African women and internal exile. So I'm looking at the banished women of um, Mampela, Rampele, Winnie Mandela, mm-hmm. and Frances Bard. And so I'm arguing that banishment for them occurred in three stages. One, I talk about the landings, right? How they land, um, excuse me, let me back up. One, I talk about the cutoffs. And when I say cutoffs, how were they taken away from their original community in place in quote unquote foreign lands, right? <laughs> then I talk about how they landed there. What, you know, what kind of conditions did they have a house? What what did they endure for the first few days, right? Mm-hmm. And the last part, I talk about repolitization. Like how do they establish themselves in, say, for instance, in Bard and Mapopane and Marmpele and Nyene and Mandela and Bramford as activists. Mm-hmm. Mandela and, I'm saying Mandela because I know she went by Madisi Kela, but, you know, at that time she was Mandela, right? So she 
was a social worker, right? She graduated from the prestigious John Hoffman School. So she put that to work, right? She created a soup kitchen. She also established a clinic. She had a shuttling service. And she also was have still heavily involved um, in politics. I mean, she desegregated grocery stores and clothing shops and just, right, because it was customer in Brantford, like Africans just stood by the window and pointed at something they wanted to, you know, look at her, right? And so the group would bring it to the door. And she was like, "Uh uh-uh, her daughter, her daughter needed a dress. So she went right on into Foshini's, had her daughter try on several, because it was unfathomable to think, you know, a black person could, you know, a white person would wear something that a black person had on, right? She didn't care. Do you know? So crowds started milling around, right? The police came and all that. And then they called the police authorities in Bloemfontein because they said her presence in the store was a matter of national security. Wow. And, you know, she did that in the grocery store too, right? She, you know, she went in the grocery store, buy her things. And when she realized these, as she describes them, huge African, African mm-hmm. women looking at her, she took her time, even if she only wanted to go in there for a piece of soap. Well, after, and they would leave and only return when she came in. Well, Africans in that community started going into the grocery stores. So she was saying that the struggle is not somewhere else. It's right there. And I think that's what they learned in their respective places. And, you know, Bart was continuing uh, the campaign against the passes and her, you know, um, banished site. So that's going to be... That's what I'm working on now. And I'm working on a historiography chapter called South African, A South African Struggle on the Move, Black Women's Historiographical Traveling. Okay. I, oh, I've i been really, really wanting someone to theorize banning um, because it is such a, or banishment and banning because it is such a, um, it's such a part of the experience of pretty much anyone who was trying to be political in South Africa. And so um I mean, so I'm so glad that you're doing it. I'm excited to see uh, what uh, comes of it. Um, And I hope that we can get you back on the show to discuss when when these projects are out. You will. You will. Anytime. You know, because I need to work on, I'm working on something called social incarceration. So I'm trying to apply my, I took so many geography classes in college. I should have been a major. So I really want to hone in about geography and the confinement, you know, of hills and different things um, into this experience that these three women had. But yeah, hopefully it'll come. I'm looking, I'm excited. You know, it's like, you know, I'm, I really love South African history and I feel like the second book, I'm just getting started. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good thing. Um, Dr. Curry, I want to thank you for your time today. I want to thank you for being on the show with us and for speaking with us about social justice at apartheid's dawn, African women intellectuals and the quest to save the nation. As always, thanks for listening, everyone.